What is your predicted date for when China invades Taiwan? I I got to think. I'm going to say you know, I'm I'm going to say 2026. 2026? I saw there was a big memo that went around the Pentagon and and got into the media. It was written by a four-star general in the Air Force and he had it at 2025. He said and it was based on nothing really but his – he literally said, my gut is telling me we fight in 2025. All right, everybody, welcome to the Angel Research Podcast. We are here as usual today to discuss the market's hottest stock stories and investment opportunities. Today we have Mr. Jason Simpkins with us. Uh, Jason is the founder and investment director of uh, the investment advisory service Secret Stock Files. Uh, he also writes for uh, the Contrarian Investing Newsletter, Outsider Club, and today we're going to talk about uh, the aerospace and defense industry, Jason's uh, top stock picks in the sector, uh, the shifting geopolitical landscape, landscape um, developments in modern warfare, and most excitingly, the Chinese spy balloon. Mm, yes. Jason, what's going on with that Chinese spy balloon? What isn't going on with the spy balloon? Everyone's been talking about it for, I guess, at least the past week. Uh, it really struck a nerve, didn't it? Like, we've had so many instances of hacking scandals, uh, particularly as they relate to China. But this one seemed to get at people in a really visceral way. I think, the, like, the physicality of it, uh, the fact that it was actually just, like, in our airspace hovering over us, I think the confusion around it, like, wait, why didn't we know about this sooner? Why aren't we shooting it down? What is it collecting? What's what exactly is happening right now? You know, I think that kind of adds to it. Uh, but I think this one really, really seemed to strike a nerve with people that I, I haven't seen with previous previous scandals. So why didn't we know about it sooner? Uh, yeah, that's a good question for the military. I can tell you. So they say it happened at least four other times, and these were balloons that were dispatched off the coast of California. And then one off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia, where we have a lot of our coastal bases. And so they didn't, I don't think they loitered as much. They certainly didn't cross the continental United States. Yeah. Uh, I think they were briefer trips. Uh, the balloons, the kind of technology themselves, they, they don't really show up on radar so much, which is why they use them. It's not like flying a plane over, really. Why is why is that? Uh, the altitude and the size, the profile of it. Okay, gotcha. Uh, so they don't; they're just kind of a little bit harder to to notice. Uh, and then if they weren't staying very long, and then you know they're also they're, they are hard to perceive as as like the naked eye. There was a story once of in World War II there was a battleship off the coast of the United States, and they thought that they saw a high altitude balloon or you know some kind of like. reconnaissance airship and they started shooting at it and they couldn't make contact and then eventually they realized they were shooting at the planet venus it was just that they could (laughs) see this distant planet like given like the clear sky and like you know that that time and they were just shooting at a planet not realizing that it wasn't a balloon at all so it can be they can be kind of tricky yeah 
might expect more from our military. Sure. Well, I was going to say, and 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 what? Sixty, how many, however many years later, more than half a century later, uh, balloons are making a comeback in a weird way. Uh, the United States is working with them too. This is a big push to get. <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> balloons are making a comeback. It's just like look, you thought they statement. were just for birthday parties, yeah. but no, like they're because the it's this move is kind of. Going up in the atmosphere in terms of, like, yeah, you have traditional, like, the Air Force and defense. The big thing now for militaries around the world is that low Earth orbit. It's the outer reaches of the atmosphere where that is kind of, like, the new ball game in terms of getting the highest ground that you can get in terms of being able to get that bird's eye view, in terms of being able to, you know, dominate from the top up. There's a reason that the United States military in particular has a major focus on air superiority, on maintaining, you know, the fittest, most powerful air force. It's because if you're, you know, dominating the skies, if you're dominating the highest point, then you're obviously in the best position. China in particular <clears throat> is pushing that out. And that's why they're they are conducting all of these space missions too. I mean, this is why they've got you know lunar orbiters going around the moon. They're trying to you know a lot of people think and believe and you know maybe rightly that they have long term plans for some kind of space base on the moon, even potentially a weapon. And there are international r rules that say you can't weaponize space. I think it's clear China doesn't care about those. Sure. Okay. Like it doesn't seem like they're going to hold a lot of water. And I think if we get back to this particular balloon instance, if we can call it that, this balloon scandal, it's that, you know, it's a real flagrant violation. You know, it's kind of like they just did this. It seemed like not really caring if they'd get caught. It, it almost it, it's the brazenness of it that they're just sending these balloons out, canvassing the entire planet with them. Do you think that maybe they're trying to send a message to us? Like, is it kind of a like a, a latent threat more so than a reconnaissance? I think it, I think it can be both. I think, you know, they were obviously getting some kind of information out of it. Uh, what that is is to be determined. I mean, I know just you, the latest reports, it was all just like, I know that there was a lot of antennae and I think, you know, probably like high definition photography equipment, cameras, that kind of thing. So it seemed like the object was to get visual data, visual intelligence, as well as try to intercept communications. Yeah. And then it, I think it's also a prototype for potentially future weapons, because that was the other thing that came out, which was that back in 2018, uh, China's state-run television uh, channel, they had a whole segment where these same balloons were carrying hypersonic glide vehicles. All right, cool. I wanted to talk about the hypersonics next, because you had just, I mean, you've been talking about hypersonics for, what, a year? Yeah. And, and talking about the hypersonics and the, and the defense uh, against them. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's scary stuff, uh, because if they're... The, the jet stream is kind of in their favor, right? And these balloons are relatively cheap to make. Right. So they could potentially just a little float bit a bunch of... to detect, too. Like yeah. I said. And then, like, the other thing about with hypersonic the glide vehicles, right, they go up into low, or low Earth orbit. They have a rocket. It shoots them up there. They decouple from that rocket, and then they do what's in their name. They glide. Yeah. And so the thing about it, though, is that when they re-enter the Earth's atmosphere... They actually tend to go slower. They slow down a bit because they no longer have a rocket propelling them. Okay. They're now gliding down. And so... But if you launch it from a balloon that's already up there... Right. Could... I, I think potentially they're trying to find a way maybe to shorten that trip even. Yeah. 
Um, but we also know with China that they already have long-range weapons. We, we know that they have what the military termed to be first strike hypersonic weapons. They had a vehicle that basically circled the entire planet in about an hour and, you know, was able to kind of perform a flight that we are not capable of matching right now. And it really stunned a lot of the Pentagon because it seemed like this, like I said, was, it was a, a first strike. Like, this isn't a response weapon. This isn't what you roll out after you've been attacked. It's what you launch when you have, you know, an opportunity to attack your enemy and try to debilitate their nuclear arsenal first and to try to go at them first. And so it seems like they maybe are probing new ways. <clears throat> I'd also uh, imagine that with the the balloons and, you know, the information that they're collecting, they're collecting atmospheric information, and they're also probably collecting logistical information. All of that's going to help them with long-range targeting because if you are shooting things from over the horizon from halfway around the world, then you that targeting obviously gets more and more challenging. Sure. And so you want the best information uh, you can possibly get on it. And so they probably got, you know, a lot of good up-to-date information about, you know, just where our bases are, what they would aim for, uh, try to narrow that margin of error when they do shoot. And then I also know one more thing with the balloons, too. One thing, the reason they do like them as opposed to satellites, which are another thing that, you know, we know to be blanketing low Earth orbit, it's that... Balloons can stay in one spot and give you a consistent basic feed as opposed to a satellite, which continues to move in circle. So the idea of having kind of a stationary, te- even if temporary, satellite is is appealing to a lot of nations right now. What uh, – I mean, this is all pretty scary stuff, I, I feel like. And, yeah. I, and I don't, you know, I don't think anyone should be, like, you know, losing sleep over it because there's nothing you can really do about it. But what is – do we have a legitimate defense against those kinds of long-range missiles or Not hypersonic really. missiles? Or? No. Uh, honestly, when you go look at the U.S. missile defense system, and it has varying components, but even, even on its best day against modern nuclear weapons, against warheads, like even the kind that you know Russia had, even going back before hypersonics, that could effectively break off into as many as six or a dozen separate warheads trying to intercept the, like those those kinds of things is, is just exceptionally difficult and on our best day we're talking about a missile defense system that was conceived and first built in the 1970s really in the 60s it's cold war era stuff uh and so a lot of that was going to be uh insufficient no matter what uh but the glide vehicles and now the hypersonic speeds of, you know, going Mach 5 or faster, you know, right now, no, there's not a credible defense for that. Um, they are upgrading it. Northrop Grumman got that contract that was awarded uh, last year, I think, uh, to basically upgrade the, the Minuteman system. Those are the ground-based deterrents, the missiles and the silos yep. that are supposed to protect us. That whole system's being upgraded. And obviously a main focus is to ensure that that upgrade does in fact help counter these threats yeah you know it's going to be something that they definitely work to implement as they as they do this whole new ground-based system but a lot of it's a lot of it's challenging what i mean if if you have the intelligence that they're going to launch an attack uh it makes it somewhat easier because the united states has assets in the pacific 
because with that glide vehicle, you'd want to shoot it on the way up if if possible. Okay, that makes sense. So if the rocket's going up, you can you want to so get it there. You, you recently wrote an article about about these assets. Essentially, uh, the U.S. building uh, bases in the, is it the Philippines? Oh yeah, and then so the Chi- China with the artificial islands. Could you kind of give us a rundown of, of that whole situation? Yeah, over in the South China Sea. So. Yeah, this happened roughly the same week. And, you know, you're talking about sending a message. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just coincidence. But as it was widely publicized, too, that uh, Anthony Blinken was going to make a trip over to China, and then it was canceled because of the balloon incident, and that he's a secretary of state. And also, but last week, the United States signed a new deal with the Philippines uh, to rotate troops in uh, four bases in the Philippines. Because the United States used to have permanent bases, but that ended in 1992. Because, I mean, there was a whole kind of anti-colonial thing. I mean, it was, the vote was actually pretty close. I think it was like 12 to 11 to, <clears throat> to basically move U.S. forces outside. But the new uh, uh, Filipino constitution prohibited permanent foreign forces from from being there so the but they make an exception for for the u.s well, is that the, the compromise now is that the troops rotate in and out so okay. they're not there permanently they're just rotating you know in and out they're on a temporary basis um and the philippines are incredibly important because they are taiwan's closest neighbor outside of mainland china uh there's really not much ocean between uh, the Philippines and Taiwan. Yeah, we should throw up throw up a map. <clears throat> yeah, that South China Sea area. It's a, it's a very hotly contested area because if if we do put a map up, you'll see it is called the South China Sea, but it is bordered by I, I, maybe maybe close to ten countries. Uh, but it's where Malaysia is, uh, in Indonesia, the Philippines, all those. Those groups and what China has done is basically claimed that entire area for itself, the entire sea, South China Sea for itself, despite the fact that those countries are entitled, according to the UN, to their own maritime economic zone, which goes out to about I think I think it's like ten miles off your coast is your economic zone. That's your coast. That's your sovereign coast. China is like no. We're, that's that's ours too. Yeah, and they've even gone so far with the with the Philippines is they're building bases and there's a bunch of artificial islands. They were small, like like uh, sandbars and kind of small uninhabitable islands. China's basically built them up and expanded them so that they're able to support things like runways and barracks, uh, you know, all that stuff for like airfields and like makeshift ports. Uh, to really militarize that region. It's also a really kind of a crucial region for trade, too. A lot of trade passes through there. There's, it's resource-rich. There's oil in there. Uh, it's, it's pretty significant territory. Uh, and, but they've, like I said, they've, they've really claimed it for their own, and that's why it was so important for the uh, uh, United States to get back in and make sure that we have a strong presence in the, in the Philippines, because that's really... That's really the only ally and the best ally we have close to the southern coast of China. Up on the northern coast of China, you have South Korea and Japan, where we also have significant assets. But down there, closer to Taiwan, uh, that's... That's obviously the major flashpoint, and you know that's you, you got to be present there. Do you know what the like what the vibe is like in those countries? <laughs> like, are they like like you know? Do they hate China? Do they like what? It, are they terrified of China? What do you have? What's the political landscape like there? 
you know, not being a citizen myself, I like I, I can't say I have gone and conducted ground interviews. I can tell you that the the Taiwanese government has popular support. Like it, they like being independent. Mm-hmm. Like by much, there's a small Chinese major, minority there that you know is probably agitates for rejoining China, but I don't think it's very big at all. I think it's it's tiny. I think if you're looking at like approval for the overall like independence of Taiwan within Taiwan, it would be probably like 95 to 99%. It would be significant. And, you know, and, you know, that other area, I think the for them, the mood, if, you know, if you were going to do a vibe check, I think you'd say they were nervous, you yep. know, uh, as you would be if you had this kind of more militant, uh, larger neighbor who made it clear that the international rules and international norms don't apply to them and that they don't really respect them and that they are intent <clears throat> uh, intent on basically rewriting those rules in a way that suits them and their purposes and their agenda, then, yeah, I mean, you're going to be nervous. You're, you'd be nervous about not having access to resources that you believe are yours or uh, transport lanes uh, that you think you have a right to, that you, I mean, do have a sovereign right to, you know, you, that's, so yeah, I think, I think it's a pretty, pretty scary over there. And plus you don't want to be any kind of collateral damage, you know, I mean, who knows what could happen if, if, if a war does in fact break out, which I mean, seems rather likely uh, within the next few years here. What scares you the most about China? Oh my God. You know, scares me the most about China. I, got, I don't like to think of myself as being afraid of China. <laughs> I think overall it's, it's, it's just, I think, the capability and the determination because, like I said, they're, they're kind of playing their own game. They're doing their own thing. You know, they're not out there being affected by the United States or Europe or even allies like Russia or whatever. They're kind of you know, they're, they're pushing their own boundaries and they're doing their own things. And like I said, they're, that's why they're developing technology that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, they're increasingly willing to use military force and uh, political force. I mean, you saw when they reabsorbed Hong Kong. That happened during the pandemic. It kind of happened in a flash, and it was like quickly. You just woke up one day, and it was like, hey, China took Hong Kong back, and they like they removed all independence from it, where it had been this kind of semi-independent entity. Uh, they just, just came down. They clamped down on those protests. They can be ruthless, as we've seen in, in going back to you know the Tiananmen Square. I, there's, you know, communist regimes... <laughs> They don't care, man. Like, for them, it's all about the power and keeping power and exercising power and expanding that power. So, you know, they'll do anything for it. You you can even see that, again, to a lesser extent in Russia, you know, where it's it's pretty clear that they'll just – they'll do anything that they feel that they got to do to gain the leverage that they want. All right. So I actually want to talk about Russia next, but real quick before we get there – what is your predicted date for when China invades Taiwan? I, I got to think. I'm going to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to say 2026. 2026? I saw there was a big memo that went around the Pentagon and, and got into the media. It was written by a four-star general in the Air Force, and he had it at 2025. He said... 
And it was based on nothing really but his, he literally said, my gut is telling me we fight in 2025. And his reasoning was that because that's a presidential election year, basically, 2024 will be, that we'll be in the middle of a presidential transition. And we saw how chaotic the last one was. Sure, yeah. You know? So, like, so we'll, we'll be distracted. Exactly. At the very least, you always have that point with an incoming administration, getting everyone up to speed, uh, you know, handing things over and, and making that whole transition of power. He thinks that that opportunity, uh, also, coincidentally, I'm pretty sure China itself has quote unquote elections in 2024. Uh, or I think maybe at the very least. Yeah, because, I mean, technically, Xi Jinping's a president, right, even though he's president for life. Um, but they still got to, guess, go through the motions. Wait, wait. So how, I, I honestly don't even know how that works. Do they have a regular election or he once he's elected, he's president for life? Well, but. he rewrote the Constitution. The Communist Party rewrote the Constitution to, to accommodate that, mm-hmm. to, to make him president for life. Uh, before that, there were terms. <laughs> Uh, they were, and I mean, it was kind of a, a charade in the sense that, like, the party's going to choose the candidate, and it's a single party government, so it's not like they're yeah. running against opposition so much. It's more about you know the party voting and voting for their leader, uh, and that's why Hu Jintao was the uh, the Chinese premier uh, before Xi Jinping, and then he stopped, and then Xi Jinping ascended. And but he was like, yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stay for a while, you know. <laughs> like it was just kind of like, all right. So so that's that's gonna happen. That's all gonna jump off in 2024. I don't. So the uh, that's the that's the f- closest prediction I've seen. So 2025, 2026. But You're saying I, I'm hoping I'm hoping it'll. Yeah, maybe they'll wait a year. Yeah. Like maybe yeah, yeah. for whatever do you, reason. Do you feel, you feel like it's inevitable? Uh, yeah, it's gotta be right. I mean, it just has to be. You know, it, it just like it just seems like it's what they're working towards. Yeah. And again, we can segue it over because it was the same thing with Russia and Ukraine. It was the same thing with Russia and Crimea. It's like, we're not giving it back. We're going to take it. We're not giving it back. This is, you know, they're going to, they use the phrase, you know, this is vital to our national security or whatever. With China, you know, they're obviously very insistent that Taiwan is theirs. It is a part of their country, you know, so. Would, uh, do you ever see Taiwan putting up the kind of resistance that we saw that we're seeing in the Ukraine, or that's... I hope. I get the, Again, what military uh, officials will tell you is that they got 24 hours to basically stay alive. You know, if, if they can keep China from basically taking over and, you know, debilitating them and overwhelming them within the first day and just buy themselves some time, then that could be enough for, for like, the United States to basically marshal some kind of a response. Um, I don't know what kind of response that would be. It would, I mean, obviously military in some sense. I don't know. I guess you would have to think. <laughs> Do you feel like that's right. necessary or worth it? Like, I mean, I feel like strategically, maybe it. it like, I, I could see the the reasoning for it, but like, is it like is that worth like risking war with a nuclear power? Like, because you know, they want to take over like a little. Well, it's a island? test of U.S. resolve, right? Yeah. If we have an ally and you know a country that we've had this defensive agreement with for whatever it is, the past 70 years, uh, and we don't honor it, what does that say to our other allies? That, yeah, that, yeah we have your back unless it looks kind of grim. You yeah. know, like, yeah. <laughs> unless, you know, unless it might actually affect sure. us, you know, like, look. But is that is that it, though? Is it just a matter of pride? Is it a, ma- a matter of, of tr- trying to, to, well, to it's a matter, hang on to power? I think it's, it's more of a matter of upholding the international order. Yeah. Uh, there are rules, basically. Uh, There's a reason why that, you know, outside of 
internal political fractures that, like generally speaking, the borders of countries have remained the borders of countries for the past 75 years. Yeah. And it's, we haven't seen wars for territorial gain so much. It's the same way that we had the initial Operation Desert Storm when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Does Kuwait matter? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, like, do the rules matter? Are you just allowed to do this? And then if so, who's next? If you, it's, it's the old appeasement theory. If you let China take Taiwan, yeah. well, maybe Korea's next. It's a double-edged sword because well, I feel like whenever we get into these these scraps, it never really actually ends well no, for us. But it, at the same no, time, if you let it happen, then you do have these, these yeah, issues Yeah, there's really no about. like right answer to it. There's no – it, 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 there's no way it just resolves peacefully and nicely. There's no way we all just come to terms and go, oh, we just solved this with a discussion. Great. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, wouldn't that right. be the all world right. we live in? Let's basically. talk about uh, the Ukraine and the uh, – they got these uh, M1 Abrams. What's, they what's... got the tanks. Yeah. Uh, the Abrams will probably be the least helpful to them, even though they are the most sophisticated of the group they're getting. They're only getting 31. They're probably going to – they're going to get – I haven't seen an exact number, but – a couple hundred uh, leopard tanks from Germany uh, were made by they're made by a German company called Krauss Maffei, um, and they're German-made tanks. Uh, they're effective. They're very similar in build. Uh, they're both about uh, seventy tons or so. Uh, I think once like I think the Leopard sixty-six and the Abrams maybe sixty-eight technically, but they're up there around there. Uh, the Abrams was made in nineteen eighty. Uh, the Leopard in 1979, so they're kind of from the same like generation of tank. They each have a range of about three miles on a 25 millimeter cannon. Uh, so Wait, how many? 25 millimeters. No, sorry, how many miles? Oh, three. Three miles. Okay. And so it's fucking crazy. Yeah, like the uh, the Abrams are gonna take. They're gonna be harder to learn on. There's gonna be fewer fewer of them. They're gonna take longer to get there, and they take longer to learn there's more of a learning curve with them because of the technology i think and probably because you know there's probably think things i think just in the european theater that are more comfortable or like whether it's language or just you know the nature of things um but the leopard ones they're going to get there by march uh so it's it's definitely going to help them it's a big deal because the the big thing that everyone keeps talking about right now in Ukraine and the thing we're all waiting on is uh, the spring offensive. That, yeah. That's been – they've been warning about it. They thought it was going to happen on the anniversary of – the one-year anniversary of when the war started. Uh, that would be kind of dumb. Yeah, right. You know? But like, like still, I don't know. Like why not? You know? <laughs> like, I guess you got to yeah, pick you got, Yeah, you got to speculate. The thing is it didn't go that well the first time, so I don't know why you would – like you got sent running. Like you basically went into a full-on retreat the last time you tried it. Yeah. So, uh, but it's, it's going to come at some point because we know that Russia last year caught up anywhere from 300,000 to 500,000 uh, conscripts, right? And so this whole time through the winter, it's been kind of a stalemate at, at the front since uh, the last Ukrainian counteroffensive, which was, you know, back, I think, in the fall. And uh, they had to train uh, these new soldiers as best they could and basically get them up to speed and get them outfitted. And mm-hmm. now it's going to be a matter of getting them out into the field. And I think the, the because the tanks are going to start arriving in March, the timeline 
probably is if you're Russia, probably now or never. You're, you're getting, you know, in the next few weeks because you don't want to wait till the tanks are there. Sure. Uh, you want to press, you know, whatever advantage you have while you have it. And so because the the tanks that are being sent over, both the M1 and the Leopard are similar, but they are vastly superior to the tanks that Russia is using. Russia has really had a dip into its tank reserves, which it turns out weren't all that great. They've been using like basically Cold War era tanks. Their main one that they're using, like the T-72, that one was made in 1969. So that was 10 years before... Maybe they're uh, using tanks from 1969. Yes, that's crazy. And they have a they have a range of about a mile versus three miles. They uh, they weigh 42 tons as opposed to 68 tons or close yeah, to yeah. 70 tons for the more modern tanks. Uh, they're they're smaller. They're not as good. Their their armor's weaker. Their technology's weaker. Uh, yeah, I mean, they obviously wouldn't stand a chance against. No, and a lot of them are in really bad shape. Like nobody knows how many functional tanks Russia really has. They have thousands in storage, but a lot of those have been cannibalized, which means they go and you have a tank that breaks down, you take parts from another mm-hmm. tank. And so they've kind of got that going on. They've been, I mean, they were just falling apart. Like Ukraine captured, I think, like a thousand Russian tanks. They captured or destroyed at least a thousand tanks last year. And so, you know, m- moving the new stuff in, they're, they're going to have an even bigger advantage. I know, I know tankers will tell you like, well, the tank's only as good as the crew, basically. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really matter about the, I mean, yeah, the, <laughs> the weapons are great and you want the, the best weapons, but if your tank crew isn't good at communicating, if you don't know what you're doing out there, you know, if you drive, if you have a, a driver who puts you in a mud hole, then it's not, then that's the problem, sure. you know, as opposed to, it, you know, what kind of caliber gun you have or so, how accurate. So speaking of things that are maybe pretty difficult to learn, mm-hmm. uh, Ukraine is now, uh, at least some officials are asking for the F-16s. Uh, oh yeah. How much is that? Is that a longer learning curve than the Abrams? And then uh, uh, let's just start there. Yeah. So I mean, I would imagine, again, having not operated either of them myself, <laughs> uh, I I think you know for professionals, for a professional military, they should be able to get up to speed relatively quickly. Like I don't think they're so advanced. Um, it's I think I think they'll be able to. Yeah, right. Those are an earlier generation. Yeah, than the those Abrams are. are so. they, they've been around a little bit longer. I, I feel like they, they've been around. The F-16's probably been around since the '80s. It's, I think that some of that stuff's a little bit more familiar. That technology, and if it's not, it's probably similar. They've, we've probably seen planes like it. I think they were flying the old Soviet MiGs, so I think it'll be an upgrade over those. Yeah. Uh, but that's the thing. We don't even know that they're going to get those right now. The position of like the Biden administration is no, you're not getting the F-16s. But they also said you weren't going to get tanks and they also said you weren't going to get medium range yeah you'll get the f-16s if you need them yeah pretty pretty much much is kind of way it's gone and that's been a big that's been a sticking point for a lot of you know military people that i've talked to even because they're like if you know you're going to send them the stuff eventually why not just give it to them early like yeah it's great that they're sending them the tanks now but it would have been better months ago when yeah it seems a little like politics like you're yeah. kind of boiling the, fro- the the frogs like slowly and the instead only of... reason the only reason we're even sending the abrams tanks because again they're not going to be that effective we're only sending 31 it's because europe wouldn't send its tanks unless we did mm. it's it's like they weren't going to do it or especially germany was holding up because because they make the tank they can tell you whether or not you can sell it to somebody else. So you can't just like, you know, you can't buy a German tank and then sell sure, it to... Sure. So, you know, they were holding up the transfer uh, 
and they wouldn't budge basically until the United States got on board and said, "Fine, we'll send them tanks too." And like I, that kind of thinking, I don't, I do not understand it. Um, but you know, that's that is the nature of politics. That that is again the world we live in. It can be frustrating and confusing at times, uh, and so that's that's where it's at. So eventually, will they get more sophisticated air superiority? Like maybe. And, but I'll tell you what, they'll need it if they are going to retake Crimea. And I think the question the United States has to ask itself, and I think the West has to ask, like, are we supporting Ukraine so that it doesn't lose, or are we supporting them to win? Yeah. Like, what do we have? Do you want them to win the war or not? Do you want them to be and able winning to, the war at this point is retaking Crimea. Re, is making yeah. Ukraine whole and yeah. sending Russian packing in a way that they're not going to come back yeah. Um, because the last thing we need is to fight this war again five or ten years from now, you know, like it's, it's got to be settled. And I know it's a real red line, and I think that's kind of the thing. I think maybe with – and I couldn't tell you if there's been back-channel negotiations with Russia or anything like that, but I do know that like all of the – a lot of the rhetoric about – using nuclear bombs that Putin and the Russians were throwing around is kind of dialed down. Um, it's not It's not as overt. It's not as wild as it was there uh, last summer and into the fall. And you kind of wonder if the United States was basically like, and the West was like, look, we'll support them up to a point of self-defense, but not give them enough capability to take back Crimea, to not give them enough capability to really cut off the head of the snake to really finish this in any way. Because if they are to finish it, that's curtains for Putin himself, yeah. right? And I think that's when then you do have an unstable leader, you have a vulnerable autocrat, and it could be it could be trouble. Um, trouble for Russia, trouble for the world. Trouble for everyone. Yeah. Trouble for everyone. That's when you think, well, maybe the nukes are on the table, yeah. you know? like, And I think it's stupid. I don't think it benefits him. We've, we've talked about this a little bit before. I don't think it – it does not benefit him at all to use nuclear weapons because, no. one, you're using them on your doorstep. It would be like if we dropped a nuclear bomb in Canada or Mexico. Like, it's right there. Yeah. Like, you're going to – it's going to impact you too, and it's not, it's not great. And even then what you're going to drive in and occupy that territory, how are you going to – are you going to – Force a population to yeah, it's, live it's there. Yeah, it's scorched earth, literally. Yeah, obviously. like there, there's nothing there. You've just—it's just nothing. You just made a pit out of this thing, and that's like it's like well, we can't have it. No one can. And now you just have a radioactive pit next to your country. Like way to win. And at the same time, the political consequences from the rest of the world would be so significant as to then it would be it would be regime change. Because you've, you've played your last card. That was your ace in the hole now. Now there's no reason for the United States not to give you the Muammar Gaddafi treatment for, you know, <laughs> lack of a kinder phrase. Yeah. Like, now you're done. You know, your, your time is done. Uh, so it would be, that would be, that would be an ugly, ugly mess. But I don't, I don't know where we're going to get. I don't know, that's the thing, how long this, this conflict is ultimately going to last at that point. And it does look like it's going to be a bloody stalemate for the foreseeable future. And by foreseeable future, it could be years. We could be sitting here years from now talking about this very thing with both sides kind of hunkered in and Crimea still in the middle. And we're trying to figure out what's going to resolve this without a nuclear explosion. Well, that would be great for the sake of con- <laughs> for the sake of content, but uh, you know, obviously, don't want that to happen. All right. So nukes nukes are pretty scary. Sure. Uh, the only thing that might be scarier, in my opinion, is artificial intelligence. Ah. 
Uh, so obviously, there's a bunch of stuff going on with artificial intelligence right now with uh, the chat GPT. Um, and, but I mean, most of this kind of involves like search and chat, and it seems more on a commercial level. Is there, uh, is there any relation or anything that you see going on with the, you know, with the military industry or the defense industry relating to AI? Absolutely. Yeah, they're very interested in that. Um, a lot of what I've mentioned too, times, it's uh, things like autonomous drone swarms, right? Uh, you know, or what they call loyal wingmen. Uh, which is an aerial drone that is deployed from the wing of a, of a larger fighter, just like a missile would be, and then it flies alongside. And then that drone can fly forward and draw fire, uh, deploy munitions itself, uh, jam enemy defenses, or identify targets, help with the targeting, uh, all that good stuff. And you have a drone that does that at a cost of about $5 million versus a cost of $70 million or whatever for an F-35. Is that all what, Gen 6 or... Gen 5? Yeah, 5. five. They got yeah. those now. We can, they're doing it now. Kratos makes those. Uh, and so there's a lot of, there's, you know, it's also, I will say, like, with, with AI, it's a real, like, kind of catch-all. There's a lot of, like, machine learning and and autonomous stuff. Uh, I don't know, specifically as it relates to, like, you know, chat GPS or anything like that, but. GPS, it's like, it's got, like, uh, it's, it's figuring out, it's, it's. Showing you where to go on a map. <laughs> well, I should fuck with you. Yeah, it's uh, so uh, another one like with uh, like Palantir. I've talked about Palantir because they have yeah. like a, like software that is AI and kind of like machine learning. That one always. Yeah. So that company is like so shrouded in mystery that whenever like I hear that they have like an AI thing, I'm like I don't even know what that means. Like yeah. what is that really like? Well, what they've been doing, and this has been really helpful to Ukraine, and it's given me huge advantage, is they basically collect satellite data from private corporations or governments uh like maxar is a big satellite company right they've got uh, a whole you know array of satellites up in the sky but even like you know commercial aviation companies like airbus obviously have satellite because they're very concerned about weather and logistics and all this stuff so you could tap into this massive blanket of satellite data and then you have this AI, this software that analyzes it and synthesizes it and basically puts it into a tablet or a laptop for a Ukrainian commander to look at. Yeah. And they can see the battlefield not quite in real time, but almost. And, I mean, it can see through clouds and it can find new things. They even have, like, so, uh, like, there are agencies out there that, like, they have satellites that can detect fires. So, like, if you know, like, a wildfire is is about to burn up somewhere that you can detect fires but they can also detect it turns out the fire coming from howitzers and tanks gotcha so you, they can see where that fire is coming from and where it came from on their tablet and yeah. then they can go through there and they can dispatch drones or other munitions or tanks or train their artillery fire on those locations based on that information ukrainian forces have been so far ahead in the technology game based on the assistance they've gotten from you know western sources and especially too like that all relies on elon musk the starlink up there that satellite constellation yeah that's what's given them that connectivity and you know their ability to to do that stuff and maintain connection to the internet even when their power stations are being bombed or whatever you know and they're going through all these these infrastructure crises and everything's getting blown up they can still see everything that's going on and they still know they have a really good idea of where the russian forces are where they're going and what they're doing and so they're always one step ahead of the game we just came full circle back to kind of this uh surveillance from the yes. sky angle and i think that that's uh that's 
pretty – I feel like that's a good place for us to stop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jason, it's, it's awesome for, to have you on. I mean, every time that you come on here, I feel like it's the, probably the most interesting conversations. You know your shit. And uh, you want to plug anything before we go? Uh, well, yeah. So uh, always check out Secret Stock Files because that does deal directly with military technology. Uh, all that analysis and specifically with, you know, technology suppliers – uh, to two major defense contractors and the latest weapons and the most cutting-edge uh, technology, warfighting technology that's out there. That's where I look at that. And then in the next few weeks, I think maybe in, in March, I'm going to be taking up my new official position as an editor on the Wealth Advisory. Mm-hmm. So you'll be able to catch me there as well. And you'll be talking about some income opportunities, more steady, like... Yeah, a lot of... Well, I think, you know, like I said, with the secret stock files, I've always focused more on smaller, cutting-edge companies that do, like, a lot of, you know, really kind of out-there, avant-garde work. But with with that, I, it's going to be a place, I think, to focus more on the larger defense contractors, which do, you know, pay strong dividends. They te- they raise their dividends a lot. They're, they're always strong, consistent dividend payers, always good income plays, as well as delivering capital gains, especially if you believe that military budgets are going to continue to rise, which, given what we've talked about here, is uh, pretty much a certainty. <laughs> okay, cool. Jason, thanks for coming on. Uh, everyone who's watching, uh, like, subscribe, and join the Discord using the links below. We'll see you next time.